Listener Production. Okay, are you recording? Welcome, podcast fiends. You are listening to episode 198 of the Howie Games, featuring a man that can't actually be described in one sentence. Let's just say a man of cricket. Bharat Sundarayson. Pat Cummins, thanks for joining us. You've been part of World Cup finals before. You won World Cups before. What does it feel like just going into it? Bharat is one of those dudes that just lights up a room. When he sees you, he smiles, you smile. When he sees you, he hugs you, you hug him. When he sees you, he feels good about the world, so you feel good about the world. He's a dude that I actually don't know that well, although I do know a lot more of his story after this chat, but I'd like to know Bharat better because he's wise, he's intelligent, he's funny, he is good people, good people, although he has risen above a lot to pursue his passion, which is cricket. Cricket and more cricket. So many lost and left behind And no one seemed to care Those who should seem like they're blind Pretending they're not there Can't they see they hold the key Could make things better if they try Oh my Jaja, tell me why Won't they open up their eyes People who Bharat interacts with every day. Cricketers, fellow journos, commentators, they will not know a lot of the details that Bharat shares in this episode. I certainly didn't. In this episode, bear with me, Bharat reads back paragraphs from certain articles he's written for his current employer, the huge cricket website, CrickBuzz. But the best paragraph, the best paragraph I've read from Bharat was written after this episode was recorded, after Australia won the World Cup. Bear with me, I'd like to read it to you so you get a gauge of the man you're about to listen to. The article is about Pat Cummins and what it is to play the Australian way, viewed by a bloke born in India who loves and lives in Australia. So I want to read you two paragraphs from this article. But what is the Australian way anyway? It could be said it's nothing more than a lazy line that some use to suit whatever it is they want. You wonder if it's a line that is used by a certain generation of Australians who just can't get their head around the fact that their country is changing, not just on the cricket field, but also in its approach to life and society, that it's getting more inclusive and more outward-looking, or the bare fact that there is no fixed Australian way anymore, not in the context of what it stood for in the past anyway. Maybe the best way to deal with it is by acknowledging that even if you come from very different backgrounds, you are allowed to lead your life as an Australian. And the fact that you have the freedom to do so in the way you want to is what perhaps is the Australian way. That, that is the genius of Bharat Sundarason. He's writing about cricket, but he's also interweaving life. And that, that's the Australia I want to live in, and that's the Australia I want my kids to grow up in. Enjoy the story of Bharat Sundarason. One in a billion. So when you search and then you find And know just where to go And thoughts that once used to cloud your mind You see clearly and now you know Mystery, what is to be Revealed in King Selassie I Come on children, try it with me We want to reach Mount Zion that is the voice of today's guest. This is a man that I met two years ago and in many ways fell in love with everything about him. His name is Bharat Sundarason. He is a cricket writer extraordinaire. He is a man of many talents, but right off the top, 
this is how we typically greet each other when we see each other around <laughs> cricket grounds or around the world. I see him and I go, Bharat! And I go, Howie! Howie! <laughs> and before we even go anywhere, look, I have applied for my citizenship. I just, just <laughs> submitted my application before I left for India for this World Cup. But, you know, whatever they say, I still have to pass my test. And you know what I'm talking about. It's a line I came up with, uh, which includes your name in it. And if I can say, hey, Howie, I want some water now. If I can nail that line, then I will take the pledge. That's the day I take the pledge. You told me that at the Adelaide Oval the first day we met. And it filled me with joy that you needed to get an Ocker Howie around. Mate, it is great to see you in the country of your birth here in Kolkata. There's so much to talk about here in India. But before we get anywhere, everywhere I go in India, I see dudes with short hair. Mm. And then I see you <laughs> roll in like a freaking Sunsilk commercial. Like, picture the man walks into the cricket with hair bouncing like Farrah Fawcett in the 1980s. <laughs> Tell me about this magnificent crop of hair. Oh, I, I, at times I dress up like Farrah Fawcett. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it, it goes back to, um, I've had it for 22 years now. So I was, I think, 16 when I last had short hair. Uh, there's there's a history to it. A lot of people think it's fashion. A lot of people think it's religious. It's not it's not religious at all. I come from the southern part of India where, look, I mean, um, my argument with my folks when I started growing my hair always was like, you show me one Indian god with short hair and then I can come back to <laughs> They all have long hair. So they can have it. Why can't I? You're going to god level. Oh, I, I, I just go, yeah, yeah, yeah. I always aim for the stars <laughs> and beyond. Uh, no, I think the history behind my hair is... Uh, so I grew up in a in a conservative South Indian household where uh, you know my parents were hardworking folk. Uh, they provided for us, my brother and I. But I did not have a great relationship with my brother. I mean, he's six years my senior. Uh, he's I call him the white sheep of the family. He's a super successful scientist, doing really well for himself in the U.S. Huh. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, he, uh, he 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 wasn't very kind to me growing up. And like you know, I, he knows. I talk about this pretty openly. Uh, and to the extent he, uh, it was a sort of, I wouldn't say physical abuse, but he, I was beaten up a lot as a child. And uh, for whatever reason, I mean, he was, he was my brother, brother and I. By my brother, yeah. And my brother and I have since spoken about it. I mean, it's it strained our relationship like lifelong. I, I'm still, I, I speak to him on and off. I visited his house. I mean, I know his wife and I've met one of his two kids and uh, we're fine now. But like growing up, I don't know whether he was confused about whatever life. Or he he beat me up a lot. And uh, it wasn't just the physical aspect of it. It was also, I just felt like very uh, restrained at home. And what you see now is what I always have been. Like I've always been a social whore. I love people. I just like, even before I could walk, I was crawling into neighbors' houses. And like, I was a very popular kid. I can say this. Yeah, <laughs> but that hasn't changed. Uh, at least me crawling into people's houses, not the popularity bit. <laughs> You've got a microphone with you now when you do it. Though. Uh, that's correct, yeah. And uh, so so, so at home, I always felt like I couldn't be myself. I had to like contain myself. I had to uh, be very careful of what I was saying, what I was doing, because it was based on my brother's moods. So when he left on July 29, and like, you know, these are dates that people don't remember. On July 29, 2002, he, he left for the US and oh. he was 21. I was 14 or 15. I wanted to just do everything that I was told not to, like, not just by him, but just generally. That set off like a chain of events, which also resulted in me completely losing my way in life. Because I just went from being this um, confused, um, 
abused, like an unsure kid. Like I was so uncomfortable in my own skin because I was never allowed to be in my own skin. Mm. To just being, just going like, you know what? To hell with the world. I'm just going to do everything I want to do. Like whatever I want to do. I started with growing my hair. Uh, and my parents were not happy. I mean, they were like, like, you know, what's wrong with this kid? Because back then, yeah. um, India was still very like, I mean, early 2000s you're talking about. India was still kind of opening up to like people being different on themselves. Yeah. So having long hair meant that, oh, something's not right with this child. Like, so my mother's friends would come to her and say, Usha, it's fine. He will, it's a phase. He'll get over it. And <laughs> my mother would be like, oh, yeah, my mother's like, no, no, it's fine. He's a pretty good kid, actually. Like, he's not like, uh, I mean, at that point, I was, but yeah. So it, uh, and, and then like, yeah, and then I started playing music. I, I was a vocalist in our little heavy metal band. Then I started playing the drums. So the hair kept growing, kept growing. It like, it grew up to my, like, it was as, as long as it went, like, we used to go beyond my waist at one point. Like, I was like the wow. proper metal head. Uh, I wasn't as colorful as I am now. I was all black. And like, you know, you're like, you know, that's pretty much uh, the history of my hair. And I've stuck to it. You're a man of mystery, though. I messaged you this yesterday. I was like, right, I need to do some research on Barat. And there is nothing about mm. you and your background. I know there's some interesting parts of it. Before we get into that, though, you know what amazes me about you? For a guy that has come into the Australian cricket fraternity, I watched, I watched all the videos you were doing during the Ashes interviewing players, and you can tell when players, athletes, mm. people are relaxed. Yeah. And I can see by the look on Pat's face or David's face or Nathan Lyon or Steve Smith, that they're genuinely happy to talk to you. How have you, in a relatively short period of time, developed such strong, trusting relationships with guys that have a lot of people from the media coming mm. at them, often in a negative sense? Because I love that about what you do. Oh, yeah. I really appreciate you saying that. I know I really appreciate how welcoming I've or welcomed I've felt like just not in the overall Australian cricket fraternity but by by a lot of the cricketers as well I think how it just goes back to my how I've always been like I, I've never been I treat everyone very equally like it's not that I speak to Pat Cummins differently to the way I would speak to my Uber driver right now who just dropped me off at this hotel uh, but that's I guess I guess it's ingrained in me in, in some sense through the way I was brought up. But it's all I've never been overawed by anyone. Like um, maybe if I ever meet Ozzy Osbourne, I might get overawed. <laughs> I always felt like maybe if I meet Dave Mustaine or you know someone like that. Like you know maybe, but I don't know. But I've never been overawed by anyone. Even and I was an Indian cricket journalist, or I covered Indian cricket for ten and a half years. Like you know how they're worshipped here. Yes, but even here. Uh, whether it was Dhoni or Virat Kohli, I just speak to people like they're people. And I don't have to like consciously think about it. Like, yeah. So I think, and this is my theory, I think people, cricketers or celebrities of that kind have warmed up to me over the years because I think I treat them like people mm. where I don't look up at them, I don't look down at them. And yes, I'm a journalist. Like, so if you do something wrong or whatever, something's not working for you as a cricketer, you're underperforming. I will write about that. But that's different to uh, how I am as a person. Like, you know, I, I, I'm, I've been able to compartmentalize the work bit to just the, the me bit. And I love people. Like, I just genuinely love human beings. So when I do get to know a Pat Cummins or a Steve Smith or Manas Labushin, and, you know, I have different relationships with all of them. It's the same way I have different relationships with everyone else in the press box. Like, you and I, we have our thing. Like, really? I always have a thing with people. But that's how I've always connected with people. And it make, means a lot to me. I honestly, deep down, believe 
we're all one, right? We're all connected at some level. Like, you know, so many things, so many, we don't sit back and think about it. Like there are things that happen in your life, which in some way affect my life. And it's just how it is. Like we're all part of that society. When I go home to the Adelaide Hills now, or even when I was living here, when I went, drove back home to my tiny 400 square feet flat in Bombay, that was my reality. Like, you know, I would often feel like when I'm standing in the foyer with Virat Kohli or talking mm. about dogs or whatever, or like, you know, MS Dhoni is making fun of my hair. In that moment, like, I would always like have this thought of like, oh, there are a billion people in India who whose highlight of their life would be just standing outside a stadium and the bus goes by Absolutely. and the curtain just moves and they saw MS Dhoni. That's it. That's, they'll talk about it for three generations. And here I'm interacting with them on a personal basis. They know about my life. So it kind of, you do get humbled by it. But again, I'm not going to get overwhelmed by it. I think, I, I think again, maybe it's just I'm just blessed that way. But that's, I think, one of the reasons why I feel I've made that connections here as well. So growing up, did you have the dream that every Indian kid seems to want to have to play cricket for India? I wanted to play for the West Indies. I was See, obsessed. This, this, this is why you're a contradiction in minutes. You wanted to play for the West Indies. All I wanted to do as a child was play for the West Indies. Why the West Indies, mate? I don't know. And I wasn't even born during the glory days. I was born in 85. So by the time I started watching cricket, when my first memories of life are cricket, um, they started, like the f- decline had started, uh, but I was just obsessed with them. I was just obsessed with the way they were. I almost felt like I belonged to the Caribbean. Like yeah, I, I would keep telling my mother, no, 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 you brought me from there. Like there was no way I was born <laughs> so in you wanted to play for the West Indies? All I wanted to do, and like, it was such a thing, Howie, like everyone around me in the family, in school, they, they knew about my obsession for the West Indies. And if West Indies won, I would, people would come to my house with sweets and like, congratulate. I'm not kidding. It was, it was weird. And going back to getting beaten up at home, my father would at times like, you know, say if he was home, he was very busy. But if my brother was like, you know, whatever, he would come in between us. Not if India and West Indies were playing. And when I was cheering when Tendulkar got out, like, yeah. Really? Yeah. You were cheering when Tendulkar got yes, out? Yes, yeah. You would have been the most unpopular man. I So I was telling someone the other day, I, in 1994, India and West Indies played a test match in Mumbai, yeah. Wankhede Stadium. Yeah. Uh, my father, poor guy, he spent a lot of money, bought me a ticket, like which is back in the old Wankhede. I was in a box next to the dressing room, just because the West Indian dressing room. Yeah. So I would get autographs and all. I was got told off by Sir Gary Sobers because I was troubling Brian Lala and lots of stuff <laughs> like that. But I took a post and there was a movie called um, Mac Hiladi to Anadi, which translates to... Um, I'm a player, you're like good for nothing. So I actually, at eight-year-old Barasundaresan, went to the Wankade Stadium holding up a poster which said, Lara Khiladi Sachin Anari. Like, like Lara is the player. And so, you're lucky to get out there a lot. I, and there were these three burly cops who grabbed me <laughs> and the poster, took both of us outside, tore that poster, and they said, okay, go sit down now. Like, <laughs> so where did you grow up in India? Where, Mumbai. Where, where, I'm from oh, Mumbai, yeah. which I've had the pleasure to go to for the first time on, on this trip. Yeah, we're recording this in Calcutta, and yeah. that's what a wonderful city it is, just cricket-obsessed. But So you, you're going through schooling. What is the plan when you realise that you're not opening the bowl for <laughs> Antigua and then the West Indies? <laughs> well, um, then I said, okay, fine, I'll play cricket for India. Okay. <laughs> okay. I'll, I'll lower it. I'll lower it down. Okay, fine, Sachin, I'll play alongside you. <laughs> it was cricket. Like, cricket was just my life. And... and <laughs> While I was playing cricket, I played till a decent level, like university level cricket. Uh, but like, I just seem to always know more about cricket. And this is why I go back to my brother. Like he was obsessed with cricket. Like, and he's a nerd. I mean, he's a scientist. Like, huh. So he always like 
taught me more about cricket than the usual. Like Indian, I don't know how much cricket you watch with Indian people. They just sit and have, they just like talk a lot. It's a lot of opinion. They're not like, but we always listen to commentary. My English was always better than most other kids at school because I listened to commentary. Like I, I channel nine, like, you know, I could. So was it those channel nine voices like Tony and Richie and Bill and. Absolutely, yeah. Huh. And what a catch, what a ripper. This was a short reach taken, one of the best catches you will ever see. So everyone in my family and around me, every time they had a question about cricket, they would come to me. Like there I was watching the 92 World Cup as a 77-year-old kid. Uh, I knew how many 50s Jeff Marsh had made. Like, uh, and like, and like, <laughs> I the, love it. Yeah, and the, my family members would be like, how does he know? I like, my parents would like, I don't know. He just seems <laughs> to know. Uh, and this is before the internet and all of that. So, so it was a cricket obsession. It was, it was. And, it felt like I was destined to, people said this in my family, like whatever happens with this kid, like he's destined to be in cricket. Like there's just no other way. Like cricket will be a major part of him. And that's what then going forward kept me alive. Like cricket kept me alive. I would have not been here sitting, talking to you if not for cricket. Next up on the Howie Games, this man is huge to baseball fans and he is a top five money earner for Aussie athletes with names like Ben Simmons, Cameron Smith and Daniel Ricciardo. His name is Liam Hendricks. Recently, his team has been the Chicago White Sox, if you don't mind. Since Liam last joined us on the show in episode 148, he has been through, amongst other things, a battle with cancer. Liam's story is a man as much as an athlete deserves a next chapter. So that's what you're getting next week. If you haven't listened to Liam on episode 148, I highly recommend it. It is a fascinating insight into the world of American sports. This is a press release from Chicago on January 11th, 2021. Chicago. The Chicago White Sox have agreed to terms on a four-year, $54 million US contract with free agent Liam Hendricks, which includes a $1 million signing bonus. Under terms of the agreement, Hendricks, 31, will receive $11 million in 2021, $13 million in 2022, and $14 million in 2023, with the White Sox holding a $15 million option or buyout for 2024. That actually went down. I didn't realise at the time, but it went down as the highest average annual value for a reliever in Major League history. Which is wild to me because I was two years before, two years prior being out of the game. I got delisted in 2018 and cleared. And so then I went to AAA with the A's. And legitimately, if I didn't get called back up that year, I didn't know what my career held. This is another moment where it was like, look, I'm, I'm three weeks away from possibly being out of baseball, like very, very close to being out of the game. And then to turn it around like that, it's, uh, you don't do that without, the support of everybody around you. So that was Liam back on episode 148. Next week, I'm really pumped next week that Liam will rejoin us on the show because his story grows by the week. Liam Hendricks coming up next week. Let's get back to Barat. So I don't know your story, Barat, and I said there's not much here. When I was looking online uh, in the last couple of days, I was looking at... uh, some stuff you'd sent out. And it's best to get into this, which I have no idea what we're about yeah. to talk about, from a post that you sent out uh, not that long ago. Yeah. And it captured my imagination. Right. So yeah. this is a post from Barat on uh, at Beastie Boy 07. Why at Beastie Boy? 
Oh, I mean, I, I you know what? I'm not a big fan of the Beastie Boys. Right. Not my kind of music. I just had a cousin years ago who used to call me Beastie Boy. Right. And when Twitter came around, and my then boss said like, you have to jump on Twitter and follow what Chris Gale is doing. So I was like. <laughs> I just said, okay, I'm going to stick with Beastie Boys. Right. Yeah. So Beastie Boys are so in your beautiful tone. Yes. So this is when I just landed in Chennai for the first game of the tour, World Cup. I said, landed here in July 2007 to pursue a journalism degree with no clue about journalism. The sole purpose was to escape the dark hole of addiction and apathy. And here I am, 16 plus years on, still plugging away as a journalist. Thank you, Chennai. You gave me a second innings of life. So I read that when you sent yeah. that out. And and it was always in my mind to try and have a chat with you. And and mate, I'll be honest with you. I googled um, yeah. Bharat Sundaresan drugs, Bharat Sundaresan addiction, Bharat Sundaresan etc etc. And there, there is nothing mm-hmm. anywhere. So, like, what happened, mate? So, remember I told you about like my liberation. Like I yeah. started growing my hair and like got into heavy metal music. And um, at that point of time, twenty years ago in in Mumbai, I mean at least the circle I was hanging out with. Um, I'm generalizing a bit. Not everyone did it, but like metal music or playing music always w- w- involved doing drugs. Like is that so illegal here in India? It is. Everybody, I mean, a lot of people do it. Like yeah. yeah. So, um, in the suburb I grew up, so we just like you would get together to for jam sessions, and there was always like weed and hash doing the rounds. So initially, it just started off as a peer pressure thing, especially people pleaser like me. I was like, yeah, I'll do it. I'll do it. Mm. So I got into it, and like you know, I. Started enjoying it, like you know, and, and this is when I was in a phase in my head where I just wanted to, like, like I said earlier, help with the world. I want to experiment with everything, and then, uh, you know, the progression. You start with that. You start with the smoking stuff, and then you kind of get immune to it. And someone says, "There's a graduation process, right? Like, uh, oh, pop a pill, um, do some acid." And I was 17 when I, like, you know, started dabbling in it. Like, uh, and it was generally always in a group. It reached a point where. It started taking control of me. So our jam sessions were more about like getting high than the music. It was more doing that than like you know. Like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. We need to like yeah, mm. play music as well. Uh, and there was a lot of drinking as well. And I, I'm talking when I say like popping ecstasy pills. I'm talking. Uh, God knows what was in it. Like you know, we we're not money. We don't come from money. So I was spending. I we would buy like pills for like five hundred rupees, which is like ten dollars. Um, and then, uh, like I said, drinking. I went through a phase where I would wake up by whatever nine thirty a.m., ten a.m. By eleven, I was in a small bar close to my house, drinking, um, or go to like this little cricket ground we had not too far from us, like smoking up or doing guzzling cough syrup or whatever it is I was doing. Cough syrup. Yeah, and then go to the bar, and like that was so. It, it was like a two and a half, three hour, three year phase where. I just like I just let the like the drugs and not just the drugs. I think I just like to call it the addiction, but take a hold of my life. And one thing I learned, and I tell a lot of lot of young people this, is people talk about oh, you know, doing all that kills your brain cells and does all that. The one thing I realized was it kills ambition. Like it just because you just want to be there. Like you know, it, it life seems easier. It kills ambition. It does. It hmm. just kills ambition to like you know, and you get this invincibility complex. Like, and I went through that phase as a it, like well, I had friends who were doing well, like going through college and getting jobs and all of that. But then I was like, oh, he does it because he has to. I don't have to look at me. Like you know, I'm good. Like you know, I have lovely hair. Like I get attention wherever I go. How was this received? At what you said was a conservative household at home. 
I, I wish they had found out what I was doing. They couldn't. They didn't know. I mean, my they were teetotalers. Didn't know anything about. So it was hidden from your family. Yeah, and I, I lost control, and then in two thousand. What is losing control in time? Where you just don't like, you don't want to do anything else in life, and like all you want to do is like you know, get high and get high and like you know be with the same kind of people. And at times you wouldn't realize whether it's evening or night. And like we had friends who. Uh, like my parent my dad sort of co-owned this farmhouse like thing which is like uh, 120 kilometers away from bombay very nice place so that became our like you know we would just drive there and like you know there's a beautiful river and we wouldn't know whether it was morning or night or it was how many days we'd been there and like it was you know there were rave parties over there like not massive ones but big enough to get like really kind of, again kind of get so hooked onto it that you don't know what you're doing in life and mm. Then in two thousand five, I overdosed for the first time. Where mm-hmm. I don't even know how. Yeah, that, that's the thing. That's what happens with like you know when you're young and stupid and you do a lot of drugs, right? Like so, it was an overdose for you. It it uh, uh, so my and I I overdosed twice and I remember my overdose experiences. Like yeah, it's almost like you lose start losing control of your body and everything else. Like everything's like. Everything around you're not hallucinating. You feel like everything around you is everyone's part of. Uh, in my in the first time I overdosed, there were like six other people there, and everyone became part of this board game. And I am losing control of like yeah, and you panic. That's so. So are you feeling good, 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 and then all of a sudden yes, bad? Yes, yes, yeah, 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 good, 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 and then suddenly like what my from my experience, everything starts panicking. Like your heart starts beating fast because you want to. Get some control, and and it's a scary thought. I mean, it's it's not something to joke about, but ironically, like my friend said, like let's start singing together. Maybe like you know, like yeah. And what do they sing? This is the end, my only. <laughs> like thanks, guys. Like yeah, <laughs> cheeks, mate. Yeah. Um, so so this happened a couple of times. Yeah, and this was the first time. And when I survived that. Uh, this is still like I'm deep into that phase. Are you in like, a hospital at this point? No, no, I didn't. I just, right. I just like. Bloody hell! They kept chucking water on my face, which is I found out a way to like kind of just shock your system. Two hours into it, I somehow like got out the other side, and then I felt even more invincible than ever before. I was like, I, of course, you got through it. Yeah, and I was this cool, cool uh-huh. guy who like uh-huh. overdosed and like yeah, and. I did more of it and did more of it, and then like my father was, is is long gone now, but he was uh, uh, I think forty five or so when he had me, so we always had a big age gap, and he was sick and he was still working his backside off for the family, and then before I overdosed the second time, I remember I would go home in the morning at seven a.m. or whatever, like you know after having done whatever I had did through the night, and wait for him to leave for work. And then just like pass out. One morning, I remember I went home by around seven, uh, and he was there. He was, he'd already started, like he was. He started falling ill at that point, so he's just getting ready for work. And I just went there, like you know, I could. And they didn't know what was happening. They knew something was up. Like yeah, they were like, uh, I said hello. I said good morning. I just sat on the couch, and started reading the paper. And I was like, "Fuck! I don't know why he's not leaving." Uh, okay, once he leaves, I'll just like, yeah. So you just want to crash it? Yeah, time. yeah, pretty much. And I don't know what happened. Like maybe I was just too gone by then. Uh, all I remember is like I just had passed out, 
and randomly my eyes just open and i remember my i'll never forget that look that he gave me he's just looking down at me and just like shaking and saying nothing just shaking his head and he'd become so sick that he was he was very slow in the way he walked uh. and then he turned around and he just walked to the end of the room you know put his pants on and then he left for work and then like it broke my heart and that's was my that was the first time in those what the years. disappointment in your father's eyes yes yeah i almost felt like what am i doing with my life like you know it's why am i doing this to them like more than to my life like well, they don't deserve this but that lasted for 3 hours then i passed out woke up and like let's go drink yeah so it it's that's where i was in life so how did you break it the second time i overdosed so by that so throughout this period why i always say cricket kept me alive is like that whole bit of like bharat knows cricket was part of me So I still like 2003 World Cup like you know I was still doing all this but I had to like watch every game or 2007 World Cup as well because if people came to me and said like hey but who's this Kevin O'Brien I had to know Blara had to know yeah, right? to like, know the bloke from Ireland <laughs> yeah what everyone, is all about everyone, yeah Jeremy Bray came from Australia I needed to know that like yeah cricket <laughs> so, kept you alive cricket kept me alive so the second time I overdose was just so just before um that my my parents just called my brother and said look this something's up with this kid like you need to like yeah sorry and my brother was a teetotaler as well so he was not like yeah he moved in different circles to my circles yeah. so he came down to um, india and he said um, oh we need to like you know chop his hair off and do like go extreme thread his eyebrows shave his beard like big spread cut hair yeah off. yeah i know exactly i said hey, <laughs> hey i'll uh, i'll change i'll change your <laughs> bro <laughs> So, so he came and then they were like, "Oh, so we need to do something like then he, there needs to be an intervention of some sort." So then somebody they knew some family friend used to be a journalist and they said, "Oh, your son is like talk so well and like, you know, I'd written like some songs and like some other random stuff for he, some friends like here and there." So they were like, "Oh, he seems to know his stuff. Like he cricket seems to cricket is his life." and he writes why don't you try giving like you know sending him to chennai to do this journalism course of 10 months and my parents were like yeah 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 do you want to be a journalist i said i don't know what being a journalist is like hmm. it's kind of ironic that i sit here now yes. talking yes. about this but i said uh but the back of my mind i was like i need to break away from this like the only way i'm escaping is how i leave bombay right i need a break from bombay otherwise i just get like sucked in and that will be over and so i apply for this college like somehow get through uh, like three four phases you have to pass to get through uh and i'm sure like everything in india the level of competition Oof. to get anything like when i leave the hotel here in kolkata the beautiful hotel within the space of 100 meters there's 60 different people selling iphone covers and i look at that when i yeah. go out in the morning and i think what time is he set up yeah. and what level of competition is he facing to put food on the table so i'm sure yeah there was a, a a lot of people apply oh, like everything here absolutely that's how it is like you know whether you want to become a cricketer or sell mobile phones or a doctor there is just competition like you know in academics in sport everywhere like yeah. you know that's why these guys who come through the ranks you have to like at some level respect them and say wow oh. they come through a lot to get here yeah it was and i remember when i had to go and do this general knowledge exam there i am with my long <laughs> smoking a cigarette like you know standing outside this college looking at everyone like i'm the coolest cat ever and all these like nerdy kids i mean they they most of them were like they're reading books and i'm like oh crap like what have i got myself into and i, I somehow got in like you know this so 
And now it's like two weeks to go before I leave Bombay and like start my course. So my friends like, oh, farewell, let's go, like, you know, go back to the farmhouse. Do another party. Have another party. Do it. Like, like, let's one final like farewell, like, you know, whatever. You're going to go somewhere else in life. And that's when the second overdose happened. Like, again, I don't know what I did, what I didn't do. It's And that's the thing, right? Once you start dabbling in chemical stuff, it's uh, one equation just goes Ori and phew, you can just sink. Like, that's huh. what happened to me. But... And that's when I, I think, experienced a moment where, which I think changed my life forever. And because of when I was collapsing and it almost felt like this time I had, had less control over my, like my senses to keep myself going. And this time there were only two more guys. Like nobody was singing, thankfully, but like, yeah, it was just two more guys. And this thought came into my head. I said, shit, I'm 21. I'm going to die a loser. Like, I'm going to die such a loser. Nobody's ever going to like remember me. They'll be like, whatever. And like, my parents will be like, we gave him, like, you know, whatever we could provide. And despite all that, he's just thrown it away for some whatever drugs or getting high and being, trying to be this social butterfly in his little peer group. And that thought kept like haunting me. Like, you know, I need, like, you know, you're going to die a loser. You're going to die a loser. And then the second thought was what I put in that tweet. I need a second innings in life. Even then I was talking in cricketing terms <laughs> with myself. It wasn't like a second chance. I said, I need a second innings. I was really like... So you've been knocked over for 110 in the first Pretty time. much. I, I need to come and solidify <laughs> yes. into the second digging. Yeah. Every, like, <laughs> test cricket has second innings. Why yeah, can't I have a second yeah. innings, right? Like, yeah. And like, it's not that I'm not blaming the pitch or the polling conditions. I messed up. I yeah. played some shit cricket and I got bowled out. I need a second innings. And it was almost like it just, something happened. Like, you know, I just broke through, broke free of it. Like I somehow survived that. And then I took in, took in a vow to myself. I'm never even going to, not even weed. I'm not doing anything. Like I'm just going, because I got a second innings, like whatever it is, like, and I'm not a religious person, but whoever gave me that second innings in life, I'm not going to let them down. And literally from that day on was uh, how we like, People ask me, why do I smile so much? I, every morning I wake up and say, one more day ticked off. Like, this is a bonus. I, sh- I should not be here sitting, talking to you. Like, I shouldn't, I don't. Glad it, you are. Yeah. No, in, at some level, I don't think I deserve this at all. Because I should have died a loser like 16, 17 years ago. But I did not. And, what, what do you reckon yeah. the score is in the second innings at the moment? Uh, I think we're doing pretty well. I think you're at two for 460. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. it's like. When Australia were on top, like, you know, Hados, uh, <laughs> yeah. Hados and Punter, I'm like, hey, JL's made runs as well. Don't get me wrong. But like, uh, it's... <laughs> That is the end of episode 198 of the Howie Games Part A featuring Bharat Sundaresan. Plenty more joy to come in Part B. 